1: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Nadia Brown and Dr. Danielle Casares Lemmy to discuss their new book, Sister Style The Politics of Appearance for Black Women Political Elites, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Sister Style is about the everyday politicization of Black women's bodies and its ramifications for politics. All political candidates make strategic choices about how to present themselves to voters, but not all candidates have to, quote, weigh decisions about their self-presentation alongside stereotypical tropes, cultural norms that denigrate Blackness, and European beauty standards, in addition to the historical legacies of racism, colorism, sexism, and heteropatriarchy, unquote. Sister Style interrogates what the politics of appearance for black women means for black women politicians and black voters, and how expectations about self-preservation differ for black women versus black men, white men, and white women. For many black women in politics, racist and sexist cultural ideas have been used to demean and fetishize them based on their physical appearance. They are oftentimes pressured into changing their appearance to look more like their white female counterparts. But Brown and Lemmy highlight the agency of black women candidates and the book aims to reconceptualize how black women political elites are thought about, assessed, measured, and evaluated. Dr. Nadia Brown is a, is a university faculty scholar and associate professor of political science and African-American studies at Purdue. In July, Dr. Brown will be professor of government and director of the Women's and Gender Studies program at Georgetown University. Dr. Brown is also the author of Sisters in the State House, Black Women and Legislative Decision Making, and editor of three books Distinct Identities, Minority Women in U.S. Politics, Body Politics, and Me Too Politics. She edits Politics, Groups, and Identities, and is a founding member of uh, the at Women Also Knows stuff. She most recent, Her most recent public-facing publication is Here's How to Teach Black Lives Matter. We've developed a short course on Washington Post's Monkey Cage with Ray Block Jr. and Christopher Stout. She also has a book on that that she helped edit uh, that we'll be having on new books in political science. Dr. Danielle Lemmy is a Tower Center Fellow at the John C. Tower Center for Political Science at Southern Methodist University. Her specialization is representation in American politics with a focus on gender, race, and identity. Her research has appeared in Politics, Groups, and Identities, Du Bois Review, the Journal of Race, Ethnicity, and Politics, P.S. Political Science and Politics. British Journal of Political Science, and Perspectives on Politics. I'm delighted to welcome Danielle and Nadia to the New Books Network. Thank you for having
2: us. Thank you so much.
1: Tell me a little bit about how the impetus for this book began. Um, It's collaborative. So what drove that desire to collaborate had you collaborated before? Okay, the long story (laughs) of the the short, abridged, uh, probably versions. the short story, but it, <laughs> but you know you know the story, so you decide. It's a good story, yes.
3: Um, so I'll start quickly, and I'll and I'll let Danielle um, add from her perspective. But so this book idea had been in my head for a very long time. Actually, since I started collecting this data for sisters in the Statehouse, which was my dissertation, then turned into a book project. So I knew this was a thing I wanted to talk about. The politics of appearance, given the, um, the interview data that I collected. So fast forward, right, Citrus in the Statehouse comes out, um, and I'm trying to gear up to do this, uh, this new book project. And in a very short time period, I think it was five years or maybe four years, I was in a really bad car accident, and I had three kids. And so all of my... Um, career and political <laughs> aspirations in the field of political science was like nope not gonna happen and I had a research design and like this whole book mapped out that I just couldn't do given my life circumstances and I'm so fortunate to have met Danielle um, and she could tell this part if I think this is so so important um, to talk about the agency that uh, some junior scholars have and after talking with her and was like, do you want to write this together? Right. She is a methods whiz kid and she um just brings so much to the project that this re envisioned project that I had to do because my life circumstances changed. And to be really real, right, and honest, um, you know, it took me about like a year to mourn the project that I thought I would be writing. Um, but I became so energized by Danielle and her shared interest and her skill and her methodological skill set. And I thought that our our joint projects wouldn't come together to make this a, a really good book.
2: So I'll share how, how this went from my perspective. So I was a grad student. Um, gosh, this must have been after I defended my prospectus. And I, I was studying uh, you know, race, ethnicity, and identity in the state legislature. And in my work, I bring in multiracial politicians because we don't really have much work that interrogates, like, how does this work for politicians who, you know, have these multiple racial ethnic identities? And so one of, I think it was Nadia's PGI piece, It's More Than Hair, I had read that um, and some of the themes that emerged from that were, were speaking to me because one of the, the themes in the literature on multiracial identity is that people ask, you know, so-called, quote unquote, multiracial people, like, what are you? Because they can't interpret their appearances. And so I had done some fieldwork and before heading out to do my fieldwork, I had read Nadia's first book. And I loved it. It it really influenced like how I was thinking about how I was going to ask these legislators all these questions about their lives. But it was also helpful for me because I was like, I've never done this before. Like, what do I do? Do I just call them? Do I just like show up? Right. And so Nadia's appendix and like the write up was so detailed that I was like, OK, I feel like I can start with this. And so, you know, I went out and I was working on my dissertation. And then I was like, OK, I need I need some feedback. And so this is very common, I think, um, for, like, junior women of color. Like, we are very, like, eager to get feedback on our work. We want critical feedback. Like, we want the critique. But sometimes people just don't give it to you. Sometimes you just get neglected. You get flat out ignored. And so I just cold emailed Nadia. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm Danielle Lemmy. I read your book, blah, blah, blah. Would you be willing to read my paper? And she was like, Yeah. And then she got on the phone with me and I was like, oh, that's so nice of her. And then, you know, we kept in touch. And like, as I continued working on my dissertation, like my interests were starting like to converge with Nadia's interests. Um, And then it just kind of worked out that way.
1: And and I just want to say how much I appreciated how the each of you write separate acknowledgments at the start. uh, And I appreciated both. I, I think it's really important for all of us to talk about ourselves as people. Uh, before we started the podcast, we were talking a little bit about an, a new biography of Mary Church Terrell, and one of the points there is that she always thought of herself as a person, and she didn't want to just be a myth. She wanted to be she wanted to be understood as a mother. She wanted to be understood as an activist. She wanted to be understood as a policymaker, and I I just really like the way the two of you are showing all of the sides of, of who we are as scholars. And you, you, you can't write out a car accident. And we do our writing around the birth of children and the taking care of children. And as you say, Danielle, the way your graduate program works, which you're very candid about. And I really loved that part that this having somebody who can show you how you might do it and is willing to intervene and have that phone conversation can really change an entire career. So anyway, I really loved how you guys talked about that and I'm glad to share it with everyone here. Um, the book is organized around several questions. And these are your phrasings of the question, so I'm just stealing it from you. But what are the origins of the contemporary focus on Black women's bodies in public life? How do Black women politicians make sense of the politics of appearance? Is there a phenotypic profile uh, in which most Black politi- black women politicians fit? And how do voters process the appearances of Black women candidates? Um, Usually a book in political science would sort of begin with the literature review on the topic and then, you know, move to demonstrate what's distinctive about this study. But that's actually not what happens here because, as you say in the book, this really is the first study to systematically look at the political implications of Black women's phenotypes and there is no other uh, study um, in either political science or a related field that is making that connection between Black women's appearances and electoral politics. So let's start by you telling us a little bit. So what literatures did exist uh, that you're either building on or contributing to? And, and what was completely missing that you needed to, to create?
3: Uh, so maybe I'll start first and Danielle you can you can jump in too and, and add your perspective. So um there is nothing in political science. That's <laughs> the short answer, right? Um so the things in political so so this book is different because it draws primarily from anthropology, sociology, psychology, women's studies, Africana studies, um, to help make the argument. So, you know, I say in jest, there's nothing in political science, but it's nothing like what we're doing in political science. Right. And so while colorism has been studied before in political science, there's uh, there studies on phenotype or particularly attractiveness for candidates in political science. They don't take serious uh, racial gender lens, but understanding that race and gender are the social constructs that um, are not, you know, we're removing kind of this essentialist ideas about identity I'm really interrogating why this is. And so one of the reasons why I knew that this had to be a book and not a series of articles um, was because political scientists didn't have the language to evaluate this. So I'll give a really quick example. I was presenting this work as a assistant professor at the Midwest Political Science Association. And I it was a it was a rough draft kind of like how i'm thinking about this and giving some of the interview data that i have but i but i was you know using this the conference space as a way like most of us do right to get some feedback on a draft and then hopefully to polish it up and, and turn it around and the discussant um, a white male discussant said you know after he gave comments on everyone else's paper that were pretty in depth and pushing them to think about really important things for their work he turned to me and said are you sure what you're studying is really about race or gender instead? Right. This could just all be a bad haircut. And then he went on to conflate what I was doing in my work as him getting a bad haircut from like a super cuts someplace where you can charge, you know, pay someone pay someone eight dollars and ninety five cents to cut your hair. And I remember being at the Midwest and wanting to like sink into my chair and kind of like melt down underneath the table and just slither out the door because I was so embarrassed. I was so upset that my work was being read or devalued in that way. And everyone in the audience were pretty much like, yeah, I think he's right. And I still remember there was a white woman, a graduate student who also studies, um, who studies race, studies it from a white
1: identity perspective
3: put his hand put her hand on my leg and kind of looked me in my eyes and nodded and said, You
1: know what? I think he's right. You know <gasps> Oh, and- I thought you I thought you were gonna go the other way. I thought you were yeah. gonna have the one ally in the room. I okay, that's a terrible story. Okay. I did not.
3: And I remember having um you know the the hot tears that fall from your eyes. Like you're just so angry and mad and um and not knowing. Uh, what to say. And so the panel is almost over. They've skipped, you know, they started answering that the panels have the panelists responded to the discussants questions and they opened it up to the audience and it took me what seemed like, you know, three hours, but I came back and I shared like the history of how black women have been treated in this country around their hair, um, starting with enslavement. And then the, um, the, the white woman that was sitting next to me said, well, maybe you should have led with that. <laughs> and again, this is coming from a graduate student, right? A senior graduate student, right? And I'm, I'm this assistant professor and not at all like I'm trying to put these hierarchies out there. But what I'm sharing is that the the conversation around Black women's hair was that, uh, that people who don't do this work, who have not been granted a PhD are a better authority to talk about this work and although I have Afro textured hair, have lived these experiences, they needed to validate or to, um, th- to kind of say that the work that I was doing made sense for political science. And from that moment on, I was like, I will not do this again, right? I will be tighter. I will be better. I will be stronger, like emotionally stronger. Um, but that meant I had to go outside of political science. So what they wanted to do, right, was place the work that I was doing within what they know about candidate evaluation. And how their own lived experiences um, around their phenotype should match on to Black women, which is why in Chapter 2, right, I I go through such a detailed, like, no, let me tell you what Afro-textured hair is for those people who don't know. But then also, right, doing this as a way to bring along people as opposed to just thinking that you can rely on your assumptions about what Afro-textured hair is and how you can maintain and care for Afro-textured hair. And so they can't feasibly say, you know, pick up our book and say, oh, this is just like getting an $8 haircut from Supercuts." Um,
1: and Danielle, I want to give you a, a chance to respond to the issue about the literature. But uh, I thought using the Crown Act was, well, first of all, I'm from New Jersey, so I kind of took a little bit of pride in it. But also, I thought that was just a remarkable way of of bringing that story, that such a compelling story of this young man who can't wrestle unless he cuts his dreads and he doesn't even do it himself. A white woman has a scissors and she's standing there cutting his hair so that he can participate in something that he has every right to participate. Uh, I thought that was just such a profound way to open this, to make the point without having to, you know, um, yeah, bringing, bringing as many people who may have never thought of this in. So sorry, Danielle. You we were going to say a couple of things about about the literature, about what was there that was of use, and uh, and and what you're bringing to it.
2: No, yeah, I mean, gosh, Nadia, I don't know if I if I knew that story before before we hit record on this podcast, but like I feel like that story is like so um, illustrative. Uh, like how political science receives these kinds of questions and like the role that even white women who study these topics, like how complicit they can be in like disrespecting like right again, we don't want to reify hierarchies, but like disrespecting a black woman who's like senior to them and like presenting stuff that they have been working on and like thinking about Um You know, and so I hope that, you know, for white women who study questions of race and ethnicity, I hope that they hear the story and I hope they, you know, internalize it and think about how they can, you know, wield their privilege to prevent things like that from happening at the conferences. From the literature perspective, I think that, you know, kind of what Nadia was working on and like what I was working on and then what we've produced together, like it raises these questions about what even is a descriptive representative. And so, you know, political science, we have this idea that like if there is someone who "Quote unquote," looks like you in office. It's supposed to yield all of these benefits. You know, more substantive policy. Um, you know, people might view government institutions with greater legitimacy. People might feel like they themselves could run for office. But I think what this book does is it kind of starts to interrogate. Well, what do we even mean by descriptive representative? Should we be defining descriptive representatives by what they look like and what is implied if the representatives themselves don't necessarily agree? on what they should look like.
1: No, it's fabulous. And and I don't want to harp on this terrible uh, story at the Midwest, but I have reviewed, so I had been discussant for so many papers that I think are just awful that I don't really find anything interesting yet. I've always thought that my role as the discussant is no matter how alien this work is to me and my interests, it is to find what is interesting. that is our role as colleagues of each other. And so the level of disrespect there, it's, I, I can't even process the story right now, not having heard it before, but thank you for sharing it. I think it's really important. Um, you divide the book into two parts and uh, and, and Nadia has already touched on this a little bit, uh, that you're, you're the first part is interpretive and you are pulling from many, many different, Uh, literatures, not just in political science. And then the second part, is quantitative. And and this really mirrors your kind of deeply felt belief that you actually can't have this conversation or discuss politics in this way without combining positivism and interpretation. But but you say that's really unique to sort of pair these up in this way. So I, I think you, you've you you've touched on that just a little bit, but I want to ask you to expand, like, why do you need the two approaches? Like, why do you need them to unpack what it is that you're trying to get at in in, in this incredibly important book.
3: So I think that we would not, if we wrote this book separately, there would have been so many unanswered questions. And I'm sure Danielle's part of the book, people would have said, well, how do we know what you're saying is true? (laughs) Right. And then um, on my part of the book, people would have been saying, so what, (laughs) right. And like, why does this matter? So, um, Putting this together and then having the ability to collaborate on a chapter that we previously had published in the Journal of Racial Ethnic Politics, I think really showed the unique strength of bringing our two approaches together. And so um, the, 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 the JREP article is, I think, the best of both of us, right? I think um, that's, that's the, the chapter. I don't remember what number chapter that is. Um but I, but it's the best possible blend of who the two of us are and what we bring to bear on on the book. Um, but I think back to like to my work as an interpretivist, it's how do black women make sense of what's happening? What kind of cultural um, meanings are they leaning on? What are they creating? What are they pushing back to? And then how do they see the world, but then also they, how do they interpret others as seeing them? And without having the quantitative analysis to say, well, these Black women, political elites aren't crazy, right? That people are actually evaluating them differently based on what they look like. That would have been the question I would have gotten if if it wasn't, um, you know, if we Danielle and I did not write this book
2: together. So I actually think I would have gotten the so what question if we didn't write this together because, you know, I think, and and this is... um, you know, this is something that like, I, I would like to share with listeners of the podcast. Like, you know, as we go through grad school, you know, we're trained as positivists. Like the theory training, you know, if you're not a theorist, it, it's not that strong. Right. And so for me personally, theory is very hard. I haven't read a lot. I'm catching up on a lot. And so in my own work, I always struggle with, okay, like what, what is the bigger picture here? Like, I can't just say X causes Y, right? Like I need to like give, like, what, why am I doing this in the first place? And so I think that too is like the beauty of collaboration. Like if I had written this by myself, like people would have asked me, well, why did you do this in the first place? Why is this the thing that, you know, you're talking about? And so I think the first half of the book just so like beautifully illustrates like the theorizing that is happening from like the black women politicians that, you know, are featured in the book. Like this is not something that's being imposed on these politicians. The theorizing is happening from their stories.
1: No, and it's beautifully done. I mean, it it uh so this podcast has made me very sensitive to what I do and what I don't do. I you know I'm a political theorist and all of a sudden I read things with data where, you know, if I see too many charts, I I have to swallow hard. This is the kind of book where there is no so what question. There's no so what question because the data is so driven by what's actually being said and and we'll talk about the so many different types of people who you are engaging to get this information. So the, the, the way the people speaking are engaging the theory is part of what makes the book magical to me is that there is no force. You know, it's not like, here's the data chapter and here's the theory chapter. It's all together. Um, Nadia already uh, mentioned chapter two and and she and I'd like to think that the listeners of this podcast are better than the discussant at the Midwest. However, not everybody knows everything that's in Chapter two. And I found Chapter two to be a really rich, enlightening, I knew some of it. I didn't know some of it. So so very briefly, it's called Afro-Textured Hair and the Crown Act. Um, and as I said, it opens up with this terrible story in New Jersey. But just say a little bit about that chapter uh, and 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 the main takeaways that you would want so that we can situate everyone who's listening to this from all over the world and who come from so many different uh, subfields in political science, but also areas outside of political science.
3: So I really credit um, also being able to co-author with Danielle as a reason why chapter two is as detailed as it is. So I realized that, um, you know, I would write things that I thought were common knowledge and I would critique others' um, misunderstandings or limited understandings of Afro-textured hair. And then Danielle would come through the chapter and like add little notes, like explain this more or do this more. So writing with someone who doesn't have Afro textured hair really pushed me to be, I think, to make this chapter stronger. So off the bat, right, this is one of the strengths of collaboration with people from different social identities and positions. But one of the things that um, we know because of sociology literature is that most people, if they do not have Af- Afro-textured hair themselves or care for Afro-textured hair, so I'm thinking about, um, you know, mothers or caretakers of um, biracial children or Afro-children um, with um, African descent and Afro-textured hair, have literally no idea what it means to do and care for and maintain Afro-textured hair. For most Americans, right, their first um, their first interaction with people seeing them do afro textured hair is either in college if they have a roommate who has afro textured hair or in the military right the same thing but for most of for most americans right unless you are in the intimate spaces of people with afro textured hair you have no idea and it's because right, we people with afro textured hair we don't do our hair in public right you'll never you'll, you won't see me uh, you know taking out my braids in class or doing a new you know installing a style someplace else right um, the way that you see, um, you know, those that don't have Afro textured hair, right. By caring for their hair and doing their hair on television, or just like, you know, watching it at a, you know, a kid's sports track meet, right. And a girl pulls her hair in a ponytail or, you know, something else, right. It just happens behind the scenes. And you have to be in an intimate relationship with someone with Afro textured hair to even see the process. And so the, the, I mean, and even knowing this, right, still having the benefit of having Danielle as a as a co-author really pushed me to, to be more specific. But the other thing about this chapter was I did a lot of reading of um, beauty culture and um, beautician manuals, right? So I read way more than I think I would have ever done on how to care for and maintain and properly maintain Afro textured hair, which like side note was a good thing to do during the pandemic um, as just. A new reading hobby, <laughs> um, but right, but but really, the difference is right that Afro textured hair is coarser and it's cor- curlier, and in order to maintain health, it requires different kinds of manipulation or no manipulation at all. So you can't comb it if it's dry; it will break off or damage. You have to keep it oiled, keep it away from cotton textures. Um, It likes silk and satin. It doesn't like to be pulled and tugged in ways um, that aren't in protective styles that will um, keep the tresses from getting dry or breaking off um, or rubbing against something that isn't good for it. And that is much different, right? Because for people with Afro-textured hair, it's seen, you know, having... Adding oil to hair is seen as something you wouldn't want to do because their hair produces oil and requires it to be washed. Afro textured hair produces oil, but in smaller amounts, and it doesn't make its way down the hair shaft because our hair is so coily. And so, afro textured hair requires adding oils and washing it less frequently or washing it in ways that puts back in moisture that will allow for growth and health. And so, those differences. again, like art just aren't things that most people see or have interactions with in their day to day. And so the misconception is that Afro textured hair is dirtier because you wash it less frequently, but the hair isn't dirty, right? It's not the the way that the hair grows growing up or out, right? Because it's coily or kinky um, is just different from straight hair that requires it to be washed more frequently because of the way that oils move through it much quicker.
1: No, and Nadia, I think it's really important to have that information in order to understand part of what's going on in the chapter, which is that the policy formulation is driven by black women lawmakers' personal experience. Their understanding of the cutting off of the dreads at the side of the wrestling arena is so problematic problematic. Um, Let's just say uh, what the Crown Act is. It's not just in New Jersey. It's also been passed in other states. So, uh, Danielle, what what does it actually stand for?
2: So, the Crown Act stands for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair.
3: And the Crown Act is a bill that was first started by then-State Senator Holly Mitchell in California that was, um, that would, make it illegal for people to discriminate against people with protective styles or naturally Afro-textured hair in the workplace or in education and in housing. I would basically extend this to other federal protections around civil rights. The Crown Act now is um, is the, land, the law in 20 states, municipalities, and um, local governments. It's working its way through the federal legislature um, and it's been passed in the house and hopefully it will be passed in the Senate and soon to president Biden's desk, hopefully fingers crossed to be signed into law.
1: Yeah. And at the end, we'll try to talk about like what's happened since this book was published and and what you have to say about that. So chapter three is called what black women political elites look like matters. Um, and it, It talks about respectability politics, but in this very multi-layered way, and you discern these sort of six themes, and you're really working very hard on this tension between the difficulties of working within stereotypes, but not being passive subjects. And that these are women who are using their agency to strategically navigate this historic set of stereotypes, current set of stereotypes, all of this. So say a little bit about the the six themes and, and how it is that this seems to be the chapter for me that really explains like the politics of hair.
3: Yeah. So what this, so to be clear on the onset, right, that these women are strategic political actors, right? And, and you're so right, Susan, right? Like this, these are pragmatic folks who are doing politics, right? As a, so they're not these um, inactive subjects that politics is happening to. But Danielle and I want to be clear from the onset that the, what they're responding to is white supremacy, right? That they, This is not a book about anti-Blackness. This is not a book about, you know, having preferred, you know, uh, skin tone or hair textures and that these women are apologetic for having kinky or curly hair or darker skin tone. No, right. what they're doing is they're recognizing that in order to get ahead in a white supremacist society, one that's also, um, you know, built on white heteropatriarchy, they have to comport themselves in manners that would allow them to be elected by a larger swath of people. And this also recognizes, right, that white supremacy is part and parcel of Black Americans' views of themselves and others, right? But calling it what it is um, for us was really, really important. And again, I think this is another reason why this just couldn't have been an article, because I think it'd be really easy for folks to pick it up and say, you're airing dirty laundry, or these people are just anti-Black. They don't like their curly hair. Um, Or, um, you know, if they're trying to whitewash their their look so that they'll be... um, they'll be elected and perhaps they themselves want to have more Euro Eurocentric features. And that's not at all what's happening, right? And, that, and as you note, right, that these women are agents in what they're doing, right? They are acting out a politic. And so we draw from the work of Evelyn Higginbotham, who coins the, or theorizes and coins the term the politics of respectability by looking at Black Baptist club women, right, in the Reconstruction era and Jim Crow. And these are women who are practicing white Victorian middle class norms, upper middle class norms to say to to white America, treat black people with respect and dignity, right? If you are using our behaviors uh our our, perso- our proposed behaviors as a way to kill us to to lynch us, right? To deny us our basic rights in this newly, you know, this newly multiracial democracy that was formed after the Civil War, quote unquote, then we need to, you know, if we act, if we outperform whiteness, then you need to treat us with dignity. And so this is a way of acting, um, you know, this pushback of acting um, more white as a way to say to racist folks, don't treat us badly because you're racist. And so that was the action, again, like another pragmatic action that these women took at the turn of the century. And now we see these women, these these, um, candidates and elected officials who are practicing some very similar things, right? So both sets of of groups recognize the problems with doing this kind of work, right? They know that this is a strategy, it's a political tactic, but they, um, and they recognize that this is not the end all be all, right? Instead, we really do need to be tackling white supremacy and anti-Blackness. But in the interim, in order for me to do that, I have to get my foot in the room, right? I have to have a seat at the table.
1: And that's what they're trying to do here. And and what's so remarkable is then so when we move into into chapter well chapters four and five we actually get to hear the people who are either running or are you know helping people run or voting for people or organizing people what they think so uh, chapter four is called candid conversations black women political leads and appearances and there you're in Texas talking to the black women's political action committee of Texas. So, and it's great. This is a great chapter. It's, it reads like, it's like a page turning novel. Um, as if somebody wrote out an amazing play among these women who are sitting and I can see them because you describe them so well, but, uh, Tell us a little bit about, about that chapter, why it was there, and what what comes out of that incredible conversation focus group. So we
3: started out. I don't know, so Danielle, did you wanna did you wanna start with uh <laughs> connections to Tracy?
2: Yes, yes. So big shout out to Tracy Scott. Thank you again, Tracy, for working with us on this project. So I'll give you a little bit of the the backstory of how this this relationship came to be. So um, I was a, um, a postdoc at Southern Methodist a couple years ago and I got an invitation to be on a panel uh, for um, the Black Women's Pack. they were having a summit in Austin. And at the time, like we were still in the early stages of the book. And I was like, if if I go to this panel, like I'm going to talk about Nadia the whole time. And so I Nadia I was like, hey, do you want to go to this? And Nadia was like, well, maybe we can both go. So then we both went um, and, you know, we got to meet uh, you know, members of the PAC and, uh, you know, we kept in touch over the course of this project and, you know, they supported this work. They, you know, led us into their space. Um, and so it just kind of worked out that, you know, this focus group uh, took place in Texas. Yeah.
3: And again, this, and so this is an innovation of our book. We are the only scholars to do focus groups with Black women candidates, elected officials. Um and so this is also a, a, nov- a novelty because we're talking to these women on their own terms. We're letting them engage in, um, you know, what anthropologists call sister to sister speak. Danielle, um, and also like an interesting point about doing this work together, like the behind the scenes, kind of how the sausage gets made is, right, so I'm an African-American woman, I'm a Black woman. Danielle is not. We're in a space where there's Black women. And Danielle and I had to decide how we were going to do this work right? So even though um, doing focus groups and interpretive methods are, you know, more of my bailiwick than Danielle's, right? But it's still, we're doing this as a collaborative project. Um, So we decide that I will be the one who will ask the questions, will engage with the the focus group participants, elected officials. Danielle is present, right, the entire time. She is sitting a little bit um, behind me and maybe like to the left or something and does like kind of like the opening of you know, I want to give you an overview, you know, all the things that are required by IRB. and right, it's still an active participant, right? but we've made the decision that I need to be the face of this project, right? I need to be the one pushing the questions and asking and redirecting and not Danielle. And I think right, again, like this is something that we're happy to share on the podcast, because I think most social scientists don't talk openly enough about positionality and how this project might have been differently, right? If Danielle and I, co-asked the questions or if Danielle herself asked the questions, um, right? Would the women have said the same things? Would they have been as comfortable or would they have, you know, would the, how would the dynamic have changed? So um, so we really wanted to be transparent about that in the book. So there are places where I note, right, that the respondents um, are talking directly to me and are referencing things that are um, African-American culture or Black diasporic culture, that they assume that I just get because I'm Black, right? And then what I loved about doing the data analysis is that I did get it oftentimes and left it at that, right? And then Danielle would come behind and read a chapter and say, explain this out more fully, right? Because I'm still operating in my own insider status in some parts, right? And as the outsider, Danielle is pushing the book to say, well, those that don't share, right, in Africana culture, how would they read this? Be much more explicit and transparent about it.
1: And the conversation that you have also reveals something about the generations. If you could just say like a a little bit about like what it's like to sit in the room with these Texas women talking.
2: I think, uh, or Nadia, do you want to? No, no, I've waited for you. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, what we saw, like, and I think the way we describe it is like they are organically engaging with each other on things that they may disagree on, but it's not necessarily conflictual. It wasn't like a hostile conversation. It was different generations saying, you know, these are the things that are important to me. This is how I want to express myself. And I think there's actually a point in the book, Nadia, where it says, you know, you and I are millennials and like we're exchanging these looks and like, you know, we're wearing, you know, a certain kind of lip color and like this is why Thinking about your positionality and how you're presenting in these spaces, it really changes the like h- the things that people might share with you and like the way, you know, you might interact with them. Like, would it have been different if Nadia and I were not millennials? Right. I don't know. Maybe.
1: And this also plays a role in chapter five, which is sisterly discussion about black women candidates in which you're sitting in a room with Delta Sigma Theta sisters, uh, and Nadia is a sister. And so again, uh, the role of your age and Nadia's position in the sorority matters a great deal. Um, that chapter is fascinating because of the open (laughs) discussion of appearance enforcement and I'm wondering if you could just say just a little bit about it um, before we turn to the second half, which is the quantitative part of this.
3: So what I, I loved about this this focus group were the um, the bonds that the that the sorority sisters already had, although like, they they are bonded through you know their sorority Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, but they don't have. All have close personal relationships, right? And so it's a different kind of dynamic where people want to, you know, they're they're open and honest, but they aren't friends, right? They're, they they probably some of them won't hang out together outside of um, sorority functions and events because of a whole bunch of reasons, right? Um, but I think that that dynamic really allowed the conversation to flourish in ways that we probably would not have seen if it if it wasn't for that priori. Um, Relationships. So yeah, so the part that comes out is there is a younger millennial who is hesitant at first, right, to kind of push back towards these older women, and to share, you know, first to find her voice, right, to kind of say, I want to get into the conversation, right. So that's part of it. The second part is I don't think they understood what I'm saying, so let me rethink how to say it and then say it again, and then now let me say it forcefully, right, and then the the younger women that are in the room are understanding that woman's position and are trying to help reinforce her. And the older women, you know, take a step back and they're like, um, you know, let me listen to her fully, right? And they end with a very, um, uh, you know, kind of a jovial, you know, they're they're kind of, they're laughing at the end of of this long conversation. Um, But it was so interesting because of how this like kind of tentative dynamic and how this pushback, pull and then pull and push back and then a pull and the other thing that was really um in hindsight interesting to note were that all of the women had natural hair themselves right but that there were still these conversations around the role of natural hair and um and some of the things were very much this is good for me and my lifestyle and i've had all sorts of troubles and problems um, with people having different expectations because of my hair or what i what they think that i should look like Yet and still, right, we want politicians to look this way. And then this younger woman, right, really pushing her older sorors to say, okay, so what is it about this, right? And I think if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for Jada in the book, having that um, respectful but hesitant and forceful conversation with them is really pushing back. I don't think it it would have played out the same way. And and then again, also, right, um, you know, Danielle and I are both millennials so I, I think that that also gave Jada some, um, you know, she, could, she would look at us, right? And like to just look with her eyes to say, you understand what I'm saying. And I think that both Danielle and I reinforced what she was saying, right? Uh, with our body language. And then so it kind of encouraged her to keep pushing. And in ways I think that we didn't have that in the Texas focus groups, right? I think that they were much more, um, you know, without having the a priori relationships, we're still trying to manage, right, how to talk to people, you know, they might need them in certain situations as elected officials or as candidates, right, but this is a different conversation. So there are very similar themes that happen in both chapters, they just play out in such different dynamics.
1: Um, After the focus groups, and I agree, Nadia, I hadn't thought about it as I was reading about it, but it is as if that first focus group is it? It is more formal, and then that next one is almost like stepping deeper in, and and with 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 women who have a bond, even if some of them are not, you know, the best of friends, but the that the organization creates a different kind of a bond that I hadn't really thought about it that way. But that's 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 absolutely right. Well, of course it is. You wrote the book, you know, that's right. But that, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just a political theorist here. I, the next chapters. What's so interesting about the, the focus groups is you move from the focus groups to this very different kind of data. So this is where the book gets very quanti, but but in a way that really makes uh, isn't data for data's sake, but is data for ex- explanation sake, if I might put it that way, and. And here you're really trying to show the ways that voters evaluate black women by their skin tone and their hair texture. And you are focusing, that's why the book's called Sister Style, on hair being a particular part of scrutiny, which you've set up with all of these discussions about do you need straightened hair to be a candidate and can you then be natural later now you're looking to to gather uh, information on how people are actually perceived, and the first chapter has to do with uh, you taking the photographs of all of these people in one particular year and coding them, and it's head spinning. And Danielle, I I want to start with you on the difficulty of this kind of coding. Because when I started to read it, I actually, my heart started beating. I, 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 I It felt so fraught. Oh my God, how are they going to code skin tone? <laughs> and then they're gonna code hairstyles. And you really deal with that very explicitly in the book. I had this kind of like sigh of relief as you explained it. And that is one of the great things about this book is, is the way you are always both of you explaining how the research is done, including when there are decisions to be made and you sort of own them, which is just fantastic. And that happens here in this chapter. So uh, just say a little bit about which year this is and and what you're collecting, how many there are, and how you went about this really difficult coding and what the finding was uh, as to how it is that in fact people, black sorry black women running for office are perceived in terms of you know, their skin tone and the way that they decide to style their hair.
2: Yeah, so gosh, the experiments were a lot and the visual uh, analysis of the headshots. It was just a massive data collection for like all, I want to say, so those are the are three, three chapters in the book. So massive data collection, you know, we had to raise money to contract with vendors to run the survey experiment, I had to learn Adobe Photoshop. And so that that was, you know, something I just had to learn to figure out because, you know, a lot of these studies on, um, like, how candidates look, they're using, like, you know, like, morphing software. And it's like, like, this looks like a computer-generated image, right? And so, like, it was important. Like, we needed, like, the people in our experiments, like, the photos that they were looking at, they had to be looking at real people. And so I had to learn Photoshop. To do that, and then we had to think about well, where are we going to get these photos? Like, you can't just get stock models and, like, you know, present them as politicians, manipulate their appearances. You have to have permission from people to do this. Um, and so, you know, I won't give it away in the book, but you you can see who ended up being, you know, our candidate <laughs> for for one of our experiments. Um, and so it was it was a lot of work um, when it came to the headshots. I want to say that the years. The year that that data set came from, it was from the website, um, a website that collected like a list of all the black women who ran. And I want to say it was 2018, if I'm remembering correctly. It was like 600 something photos. And so we had to think about, okay, what's relevant here for the analysis? We need the photo. We need the electoral context. Like where, what levels of office are they running in? And then we also need to think about like, how are we going to measure skin tone? And so what we ended up using was, um, uh, I don't know if you would call it like an app or what, but we used this website called Betaface and we pulled like the HTML labeling of like the photo of the candidates and then we mapped it to a so-called lightness value. And then we used the Massey and Martin uh, skin tone scale. One of the big challenges with measuring skin tone is that it's all relative. Like it could depend on who you are, where you are, Like, what comparisons are you making? Like, what's light and what's dark? It's so subjective and contextual. And so, you know, I think in political science, we don't really have good tools to measure, like, skin tone. Like, how do you measure how someone is perceiving that? Um, And so, you know, we kind of just tried to do our best with what we had. Um, But in terms of, like, coding, like, there were a lot of conversations where, I like, you know, we were dealing with photos that were too small. And so, like, we couldn't really use them because the photo quality or, like, you know, the the way that the photos were taken, like we couldn't really like tell, like I, I was not in a position to tell, like, how would I code this hairstyle? And we had to write up directions, you know, for other folks who were helping us code this. And so in the end, you know, we, we think we did our best, um, but there were a lot of back and forth questions like how, like, Nadia, I don't know. I'm not sure. How do I resolve this? Um, it was a lot of work. <laughs>
1: No, the three chapters that all uh, go through the one, the two thousand eighteen, with the actual photographs of all the people running for office, in which you you try to, uh, and and you have all these backup methods because you have multiple people looking at the data. You have graduate students. You have Danielle. You have. It's very. It's it's actually way more precise than in a way you're making it out to be. So like I think you're being far too modest about the the layers that are created here. There right, there is no way to do this objectively. But what's interesting is that you own that and then you try really hard to find these different ways to to make it as you know as close as it can be. And you find that 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 the voters skewed light and they skewed straightened and then the Two experiments where you're manipulating the images with Photoshop and you're lightening and darkening and trying to find out, okay, so what what happens when when we do that? I, I think these, I think it's really brilliant, and the the different types of methods all come together in a way that I just found I found so compelling, so convincing, and and the way it tied to everything else that was done in in the theory and that happened in the focus groups was just was just amazing um before we talk about the conclusion which is really interesting because you you raise some incredible questions there and you really throw down in an important way as to why this is so important for the discipline. Um, Nadia, I just wanted to give you a chance to say anything about the the data chapters. I know you're not the quant wizard, but...
3: <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not the quant wizard, but I do, um, again, like this is why I think, it, for me, I just feel so fortunate to have Danielle as a co-author on this, right? Because this is her her skill set. And, you know, some of the things that we talked, again, like to be completely transparent, of the things that we talked about were, how would Danielle be seen on this book, right? So how would she be viewed and assessed, measured if she was going up for tenure or promotion or um and I you know, I want to state this very, very clearly, right? Like this is Danielle's handwork on these chapters, right? If you need this is her strength, is who she is, is what she does. Um, there's undeniably not me, right? And this is why we work together. And so I I really just want to um put that out there because I think that. Um, you know, oftentimes there's a misconception that senior scholars that work with junior scholars are the ones that are driving the bus and junior scholars are the, um, you know, the hired, the hired hand, right? They're the ones who will run the data and shut up and go away, right? But I hope that listening to this podcast, right, you see that there is so much in, interplay between us and how the book comes about. And then also recognizing these are the chapters that Danielle had a hand in and for the chapters that I had a hand in. While we talked about all of them together and how they fit together, there are some things that are distinctly Danielle and some things that are distinctly me. And I think that, um, you know, what, one thing that I want to do as, you know, a more senior scholar is make room to have these apparent conversations, right? Our names are listed in alphabetical order. It's not because I am better than Danielle, right? It is to show the uniformity of, of our work. And so, I think these are like some of the, the, um, the ethos of, of publishing and working together and having a true co-authorship and a partnership. You know, I wish these were larger conversations that we had uh, have as a discipline.
2: And uh, I want to add to that too, like the fact that we had to have this conversation, like I think, you know, throughout our co-authorship, like it, it hasn't been like very hierarchical. It's just like, you're going to do this, I'm going to do this, you know, and it produced a really rich book. But the fact that we had to have this conversation at all is because I was feeling so much anxiety about how seniors would evaluate me. And it's like, well, where does that come from? It's because of white supremacy in higher education and how we treat junior scholars. And it's like, well, how are people going to view, you know, this collaboration between a senior woman, a junior woman, two women of color collaborating together. Like this was a fully blown like collaborative project, like, full on collaboration. Um, but you know, the, the way that like, Incentives are set up and structures are set up is such that, you know, people apply these white supremacist ideas to our work. It's like all all of our work really doesn't happen totally as an individual. You're incorporating feedback from a lot of people. You're getting mentorship from a lot of people. It wasn't all just you, right?
1: Now, um, you there's a separate podcast on New Books Network co-authored with Heath Brown, in which he brings in all of these different authors who've written together. And the story of how collaborations go, they're all really different. And yours is a very special one. And I, I really like how transparent it is in the introduction. Um, In the conclusion, you talk about the theoretical, the normative, the methodological, and the substantive implications of this work. And I want to give you some time as we're concluding to talk about the implications. And also, you know, books go to press at a particular time. A lot has happened since this book did go to press. And so uh, also, please feel free to add anything that you think either shows How Sister Style, in fact, does explain the politics of our our time. I frankly was thinking about it when everybody was tweeting out the photograph of Kamala Harris, you know, walking tall in the light, you know, stunningly beautiful. And all I can think about was was the tension for me after reading your book in that photograph that on, on the one hand... She is magnificent. She's just she she is she owns the space that she in. She is the United States of America. She's the vice president of the United States. It's unbelievable. And on the other hand, there is something about the the the, the, the way in which she has to be so careful about her appearance that is so different from the president of the United States as a, you know his hair doesn't matter the same way nobody's looking at his posture the same way and all of the men around her were kind of like you know their their shoulders are down their hair is not done but hers can't be so it's so, or or can it be And I kind of go back to the focus groups like could it be different anyway i've said too much about that but what um but your book really impacted me i all i could i could, i saw through your book it, as I was reading it, I saw it everywhere. I think it's very powerful, and everybody should buy a copy of it. Um, but tell me a little bit about the conclusion. Why you think this is so important on these different levels? Well, thank you. That's such like a heartfelt, um, yeah, expression
3: of, of how you how you think about our work and how it's been transformative, and how you you think and see the world. I think mean, I don't know a higher um, compliment to be given to an academic. So so thank you. Um, and it is our hope, right? So we end the book with a question, right? So the final the final, the final, final part of the book, you know, asks like, why are we, you know, caught up on thinking there has to be a singular look for Black women politicians? So that's the spoiler alert, right? Like we kind of end, we end with like, let's turn this back around on you. You, the reader, you, the voter, right? You, the person who's engaged in American politics. You know, you need to really sit with, your implicit or explicit biases, right? And grapple with the way that white supremacy informs your own thinking about Black women candidates. And that, that is universal, right? right? This is calling in everyone, not calling out any group in particular. But since we, so we, um, we wrote this book or finished this book during the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so there was so many things that changed and we're happening just differently in our world. And we were trying to write and keep this book as quote unquote normal as possible, but the world wasn't normal, right? So we are polishing up our chapters um, in May and June, getting them ready to send off. And George Floyd is murdered. Breonna Taylor is murdered. Um, Kamala Harris is named vice president, right? As there is, increasing and anti-Asian violence. And, right, so we, right, as researchers, right, are, are trying to figure out how to incorporate the current events into the book, right, because they matter so much for the story that we're telling and the arc that we're trying to show. But then we're women of color who are processing this in our own communities, in our own place, in semi-isolation, right, because of the pandemic, we're in lockdown, right, you're not able to kind of do the work that we would, right, or connecting with our communities um, because, because of coronavirus. And so I think that also comes out in the book, right? I think that if, um, you know, and also like we're, we're on this timeline because this book is the book that I needed for my uh, my dossier to for, for Georgetown, right? So like I had a timeline of when this had to be in. Like let's, you know, also be real about like this isn't just, good writing for writing's sake. It's like you're writing against the deadline during a hellacious time, right? And how do you do this? And I think in hindsight, right, um, you know, both of I, Danielle and I have lamented that we wish we we could have had some other eyes on this during the pandemic, but racial, you know, racialized and minoritized scholars and people who do REP work were stretched thin um, emotionally and, right, for all of the work that, right, our universities were requiring us to do Right, where they were, you know, people were putting out, you know, how could you do this anti-racist work, right? And they were drawing on the unpaid labor of, right, their black and brown faculty members, right? So Danielle and I were not going to ask our peers and our colleagues and friends to read another thing when they were doing this other work. Um, And that also meant like we ourselves, right, couldn't sit deeply and process what all was happening um, in the ways that I think we would have done if we weren't under the time frame, the time crunch and living in the time. So um, so we do update chapter one, right, to make note that Kamala Harris then becomes the nominee. And then we update towards, right, the page proofs to say that now she is, she's VP. But there would have been, right, a much more robust conversation around Kamala Harris and, and what her historic first means and brings to the study And I want to be really clear, right, not as a study of Kamala Harris herself, right? Like this is not, right, a very narrow case study on her. But instead, right, the things that she represents, the communities which she represents and comes from, would have probably have have played um, more of of a defining characteristic. Um, And I think both right, Danielle and I have been critical of Kamala Harris, right? So that part would have would have come out as well, right? Kind of the ways in which she leverages identity politics and how other people view her, right? How other people view her. And again, I think it's um and again it's so fortunate that Danielle is you know is working together with me on this because Danielle's the expert in biracial representation of politics, right? And so not just painting Kamala Harris in this flat, right? Like you are a black woman. But really embracing, right, that Kamala Harris herself, right, says, I am Black and South Indian. And how do we grapple with this in talking about phenotype when it's so easy for her, for us to say, she has Afro textured hair, right? Even if it is, you know, a much more relaxed or less prominent kink, I'm going to lump her in here with the same way we would talk about a Stacey Abrams, which is the way that we kind of start talking about the book or kind of start thinking about the book. Things just would have been a lot different. and so. I think when we when we have done our book talks, whether jointly or separate, we point out the t- we point out those contradictions, right? So the first slide that I that I walk people through is a picture of Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams with the heading that says "Not all Black political women, Black women political elites are the same," and really walking through the importance of of this. And then again, going back to the question that we pose at the, at the conclusion, right? Why is there a gold standard, right? Let's check your bias and think about how these women are um, being pigeonholed and put in these boxes, but then are also pushing back.
1: I can almost uh, imagine a different back cover of your book. So the you know the, the the cover shows all of these women, all different, and I can imagine a back cover that shows photographs of Stacey Abrams and Kamala Harris and like. Uh, uh, all of these different women who present and come at this differently, because I think that is the point of the book is to is is to get to the point at which people would not um, would not vote based on this, would not have to consider campaign hair versus uh, once I am a Congress person hair, like that, all of this could, could change, which I think is part of what you're hoping for. I mean, I, this isn't just a work of political science of like, isn't this interesting? I mean, you want it to have, to have, anyway, I can imagine another, the other side of the book. Um, Daniela, before we, um, before we end two things, one, any thoughts you also have about the conclusion and, uh, and where we are. And also I'd like to know what your other project is now, you know, you put this kind of project to bed, but you also have something else going on. So I'd like to hear about it as
2: well. Yeah. Thank you so much. So gosh, I agree, uh, with Nadia that, You know, the end really is a calling in of all of us to think more critically about what we're studying, like how we're conceiving of representation. You know, I know Nadia shared that story in in the beginning of this conversation about, you know, what happened at the conference. Um, You know, I have had experiences where people didn't ask me questions about my work or people would be like, well, what is the point of this? And then Kamala Harris is named VP. And then all of a sudden, there is all this interest. And like, you know, we, we could not have predicted that that would happen. We've just been, you know, steadily working on, on, on this project. I've been steadily working on my project for years, a very long time. Nadi has been working on this for a very long time. And then, you know, things change in the real world and people suddenly start paying attention. And so... You know, I would say to folks listening to this, it's like, stop being dismissive of the junior scholars, especially who introduce these topics. If you don't understand it, you figure it out. Like, don't be so dismissive. And, you know, I don't know, maybe that's not, you know, I, I don't know if juniors should, should continue to pursue topics that, you know, may not work out for them in the end. I don't know. But that's for them to decide. Right. And so the people should not be dismissing them um, and dismissing the kinds of questions that they ask because things change very quickly. Um, and you don't want to be that person who told that superstar, you're were you you're going nowhere with this. You just don't want to be that person. Um, so yes, I, I agree. It's a wholesale calling in. Um, in terms of like my own work, so I, I've been working on this project on representation in American politics, thinking about how representation works for politicians who have multiracial backgrounds. And what I'm doing in this book is really kind of interrogating um, the assumptions that all of us have been making—you know, when we study news coverage of so-called minoritized uh, politicians, like when we go out and we start talking to them about their experiences within the legislature, when we ask voters how they evaluate them—some of those assumptions don't really hold up. And and one of the things I won't I won't give it away yet because it's not fully polished. But uh, one of the things I'm thinking about is: Should we even be using descriptive representation as a concept once it starts to fall apart? it starts falling apart a little bit when we start thinking about these questions we've been talking about in this conversation. Um, so should we still use it? I don't know. So that's, that's kind of where I'm headed. My solo project now.
1: Uh, well, people who are department chairs, on committees, hiring committees should be looking at your CV, this book and the other publications, the articles, because this is really important work and and we shouldn't you know the energy that it takes for you to have to convince somebody to pay attention to your paper that is also something that people need to understand as something that is just like sucking blood out of your body and meanwhile asking you to continue to do the work that that step that invisible step and that i think has been made very visible actually by the stories that you've both so Thank you for candidly sharing. Um, Nadia, where, where, what, what project are you on besides moving to Georgetown, um, which is, is quite the project, actually? Yeah. Um, so I feel like
3: I have a lot of balls in the air right now. I have a couple of projects um, looking at the role of uh, people of color, particularly Black women legislators, state legislators, in pushing um, and representing communities of color around COVID-19. I have some other projects that are looking at the role of Black women in identity-based caucuses. Um, it's like the Black Caucus, the Professional Caucus for Women's Issues, and, uh, and how do Black women use these caucuses as a way to bridge um, these identity-based groups together. Um, and then I have this ongoing project forever with Sarah Allen Gershon, <laughs> which I feel like needs to see a light of day. Um, it's on how the media marginalizes women of color, um, by pigeonholing them into issue, issue traits and stereotypes based on um, the ways that we other women of color in um, women of color in political office.
1: Well, I, I want to thank both of you for taking time on a Sunday uh, in the midst of a pandemic and at the end of a Really difficult semester uh, for talking to me. I also want to thank uh, Daniela Campos, a uh, work study student at St. Joseph's University, who assisted with the podcast and also loved the book. Uh, the book is Dr. Nadia Brown and Dr. Danielle Lemmy's Sister Style Politics of Appearance for Black Women Political Elites. Please buy it at your local uh, brick and mortar bookstore. If you can't do that, Order from bookshop.org. So at least it comes from a brick and mortar bookshop. Uh, you can also go to the Oxford University Press website and get it, but it's it's fresh off the press, Oxford University, and uh, recommended highly. Thank you both so much for joining me on New Books and Political Science.
3: Thank you.